Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. This is Jacob joining you as always. And we are back today with another edition of our Opera Spark Notes series. And I'm very excited about today's breakdown because we're going to be talking about another opera like Salome on our previous episodes that I think is one of the greatest ever composed, fascinating work, probably one of the most important ever composed, and that is Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov. Now, Mussorgsky is maybe not quite as standard a household name as, as some classical composers, but he was a monumentally important Russian composer living during the height of the Romantic era, mid 19th century. And he was part of what music history buffs will, will know as the five. It was this collection of five Russian composers, Rimsky-Korsakov, Cesar Kui, Balakirev, um, who, who were intending to kind of forge a new path for Russian music and one that was grounded in Russian folk traditions. And they, their, their kind of patron saint, patriarch of, of the five was Mikhail Glinka, who was a Russian composer who lived a little earlier than, than these five composers, who really introduced many things to, to classical music and specifically through his operas, certainly Russian folk idioms, but also some interesting harmonic tweaks, like the use of what's called the whole tone scale, different approaches to harmony that would pave the way for composers like modern composers like Stravinsky, Prokofiev, Shostakovich, certainly the Russians, but also would have a wide influence on the entire modernism movement. And so Mussorgsky was, for me, maybe the best and most influential and most important of these five. And his magnum opus in many ways is Boris Godunov. He's, he's also very well known for his, his, his piece, Pictures at an Exhibition, which is a phenomenal piece that I'm conducting in a couple weeks, which I'm looking forward to. But, but Boris Godunov is his only full opera that he completed and a towering masterpiece. And so I'm very excited to, to talk about it today. To talk about it in, in detail, it requires just a little bit of background history, which I'm going to do a la the name of this podcast in a very spark notes fashion. But the main character, Boris Godunov, the, the historical character, is a figure who served in the court of Ivan the Terrible in the 1500s in Russia. And Ivan the Terrible had, had two sons, Fyodor and Dmitri. And when Ivan the Terrible died, um, he actually, he had three sons, the first of whom, or maybe more, but, but three sons that I know of, the first of whom Ivan the Terrible murdered himself. And Boris was, according to history, present for that. Um, but Fyodor, when Ivan the Terrible died, ascended to the throne at a very young age. I think he was like seven or something like that. And Ivan appointed this council of, of boyars or kind of, you know, advisors to, to the Tsar to help him because he was so young. Now, shortly after Fyodor ascended to the throne, Dmitri, who was three years old or something at the time, died under suspicious circumstances. He was found with a knife and the, the, the 
line was that he had had a seizure, but some people felt that Boris had ordered Dimitri's execution. Dimitri didn't actually have a legitimate claim to the throne, according to most, because he was from a, a later marriage of, of Ivan, but Dimitri, in any case, died, and it was under these, these suspicious circumstances, and Boris, when Fyodor died a few years later, Boris ascended to the throne. And so he was Tsar for a little while, and that's where we pick up the action of this this opera. Now, I should mention just a tiny bit about the composition history of this opera. It was certainly written, you know, 300 years after this. It's based on a Pushkin play, which uh, was written... The Pushkin play is also called Boris Godunov, and it was intended to, to mimic kind of the, the Shakespeare histories in, in scope, in structure. Um, and Mazorsky picked some of the important scenes from this play and, and set them to this opera. It went through significant revision and is performed in many different forms now with many cuts because when it was first debuted, um, it's a very odd opera. It's, it's, at least for the time, it's through composed, meaning it's not a lot of arias where there's pause for the audience to clap. And when it was originally debuted, there was no notable female role. And that was a hallmark of, of opera at the time. You had to have some, you know, soprano who uh, was one of the, the big performers in, in, in opera and it was, was a big draw for audiences. And this opera doesn't, doesn't have that. Uh, it just has this monumental bass part for, for Boris. And so he made some revisions, and in the 1872 revised version, he added this act that includes uh, a female character who, as we'll see, kind of seems to have a somewhat arbitrary connection to the rest of the plot. You can kind of see how this was inserted into the opera. But that's a little bit of background about this, this, great, this great piece, and let's, let's dive right into the meat and potatoes of, of the opera in our standard spark notes style. I'll, I'll choose some clips along the way to, to highlight. I should mention that this is a very long opera uh, in comparison to, to Salome, for example. This is kind of over three hours long in its full, full iteration. And so I've cherry picked very important and poignant moments of music and I'm skipping a lot of unbelievably good music and so with all of these things I'd encourage our listeners to to go and listen to the whole thing for themselves. It's a time commitment certainly but but one that's that's well worth it. So we open we start with this prologue and the other thing about this this uh, opera is that it kind of jumps years and so we start in in 1598 and we open on this this monastery near Moscow. And we open with this kind of uh, small orchestral introduction. And I want to listen to a little bit of the opening chorus that we hear. We open on this chorus of people who are hungry and begging. And police come out and they're kind of uh, getting this crowd in line in a very brutal way. It's, it's 
meant to portray a picture of kind of oppression, hunger, starvation, and the common folk of Russia who are really struggling. Um, and so let's let's listen to a little bit of this opening kind of chorus of supplication from these peasants who the scene opens on. So if our listeners are familiar with any sort of kind of Russian folk music, um, that clip might st stick out like, like many clips from this piece as just, it feels so quintessentially Russian. It's informed by kind of Russian Orthodox religious traditions, but also by the folk music of Russia. and. The reason why it sounds so quintessentially Russian is primarily, in addition to, of course, their, their singing in Russian, but, but the harmonies that, that Mazorsky is using and the, the actual scales, musical scales that he's using to build these, in this case, a chorus, but the melodies, the harmonies. We don't need to delve in too much to the, the technical aspects of that, but you'll notice throughout this piece how kind of Russian it sounds. And Mazorsky is doing that through harmony, through inflection of the phrase in ways that are kind of quintessentially Russian. And this is part of the reason why this had an enormous influence on Russian composers to come, because this is a piece that really kind of crafted the, the Russian sound. So these people are pleading for Boris to take the throne. They're struggling because under Fyodor, who's this, you know, very young ruler, they're they're starving, and um, someone comes out and mentions that Boris has not yet accepted the throne, um, and it's a it's an interesting moment because we're we're starting to see right before the beginning of Boris's reign, and he's. He's hesitant about taking the throne for, for whatever reason. Fyodor has has died, and we're 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 not sure um, as as viewers. So then, uh, some kind of pilgrims enter the scene, and I just want to hear a little little clip of of these Russian pilgrims that that enter the scene because the hymn that they sing is another incredibly kind of characteristic Russian Orthodox sound. So here's just a little clip of, of that scene when these pilgrims enter. So I think this kind of religious and specifically heavenly music that Mazorsky writes throughout this opera is is some of his most incredible composition. It's just incredible orchestral texture, harmonies, 
really beautiful music. So then the scene shifts and we go to the second scene of, of this prologue. We're still in the prologue to the opera. This is a very famous musical scene and one of the most famous scenes from the opera. It's called the coronation scene. And the music here is very famous because again, the harmony is so jarring, so uniquely Mazorkskian. And so I want us to listen to a little bit of the music, very epic, incredible music from the coronation scene where Boris is actually accepting the throne. So it's very dramatic, almost imposing music. It's not like triumphant brass chorale, which Mazorsky absolutely had the capability to write. So there's something kind of imposing, ominous about this, this coronation scene. Great, great music. So the people praise Boris as their new leader, and then it cuts to a kind of monologue, and Boris says his soul is troubled and the music of this this passage feels very foreboding. And he goes off to pray, and the people then sing another chorus of, of glory. So then we, we start the first act, and the first act is centered on a character called Grigori. And this skips ahead five years to 1603, and Grigori is the other main character in this, in this opera. And so we open this act on a monk named Pimen, who is chronicling Russian history. It's very pious music. He's a very devout monk, and he's kind of writing down uh, the annals of, of, of Russian history. And Grigori comes out. He's clearly at, at this monastery, working at this monastery, and he hears some history about Ivan and Fyodor, uh, Boris's predecessors. And Pimen is waxing poetic about the former czars, especially Fyodor. He says there was peace and holiness during Fyodor's time, um, presumably also uh, religious direction that aligned with, with Pimen, Russian Orthodoxy. Fyodor was actually a, a notably faithful person and so that's I think why why Pimen here is is especially fond of of him was fond of him and but he says but not Boris he says Boris murdered the rightful heir and Pimen says he was there when it happened he walked in on a, on Dimitri the the young prince in a pool of blood murdered and Grigori asks how old Dimitri was when he was murdered and he finds out that he would have been about the same age as, as Grigori. Um, 
and so this kind of sets something off in, in Grigori's mind and, and Piman closes by saying Boris will not escape the judgment of the people. So we're going to skip the music from this first scene, but we'll listen to a little bit of the orchestral interlude to the next scene where we skip, we, we change scene to an inn in Lithuania and we get kind of Lithuanian folk music, very rustic. This is a very rustic peasant-like scene and this gets set up by some great orchestral interlude music right here. It's, it's so folksy, Russian, Lithuanian, Eastern European music. It's just, I, I love so much of the music from this, from this opera. So we have this little orchestral interlude and there's some great folk music as we open on this scene of two vagrants who have entered the scene and, and Grigori as well. And I want to just skip ahead and listen a little bit also to, uh, one of these one of these vagrants breaks out in song there's a lot of moments in this opera where someone just breaks out into a folk song and you take a kind of four minute uh pause from the action but this is one that we can listen to this is about the the siege of kazan that one of the vagrants is saying he was at and i think it's a great musical moment just a few uh a few minutes later so here's a little clip from from this uh, song about kazan <laughs> So great song there about this this battle. So it's it's also kind of a in a way a little bit of a drinking song because they're they're at the sin and they're they're drinking and so they continue to get more and more drunk these two vagrants. But Grigori is is not. He's kind of lurking in the background. Some seems to be scheming in some way, and he asks the innkeeper for the directions to Lithuania, and she says he has to get through the barricades. Someone has fled Moscow and everyone's looking and it seems like that's maybe Grigori usually in the acting here we we get a clue that this the person who has fled is actually Grigori and the police show up and they are looking for Grigori and we learn he has escaped and uh he's he starts being referred to as a pretender and we'll, we'll find out what that actually means but um they ask someone to read in kind of old Russian text uh, the description of the person in question and Grigori goes first and he tricks them by reading the description but he changes the features to be 
one of these vagrants who he's with. And so the police uh, go to arrest one of these vagrants, but suddenly the, the other vagrant has this kind of moment of, he snaps out of drunkenness and is able to read, and he reads it for real, and they realize it's Grigori, and Grigori, Grigori grabs this dagger uh, and jumps out the window right before they're able to catch him. And that is act one of Boris Godunov. So we are definitely skipping a lot of music, but uh, also, as you'll notice, it's a kind of fragmented plot, this opera. Little vignettes in, in some ways. So act two, we open on Boris's two children, Xenia and Fyodor. He's, his kid is also named Fyodor. Xenia's betrothed uh, has recently died, and so she is mourning his death, and Fyodor is studying. And we get some great music at the start of this act. There's a, the, there's a clock in the scene that Fyodor goes over to at one point, and it's a kind of magic clock, and it has this incredible music. And their nanny is around, and Fyodor and nanny sing some folk songs to Xenia to try to cheer her up. We get a lot of what are called octatonic and pentatonic scales in this section. These are two different types of scales outside of the normal uh, major minor scales that we use that give it this kind of Eastern Russian flair. Um, Mussorgsky was one of the first composers to really employ these in, in earnest. And then of course they come to full fruition with composers like Stravinsky who use them all over the place. Um, but we'll listen to a little bit of one of these folk songs that the nanny and Fyodor sing to Xenia to try to cheer her up. It's this clapping game song where they're, they're trying to get the, her to clap along. And so you'll hear the clapping in this clip, but it's great folk music, fun kind of musical interlude to the plot. So here's a little clip from, from this clapping game music. So that clip has this, if it has this kind of Eastern folksy feel, that's because it's using what's called the pentatonic scale, which only uses five notes, uh, a great illustration of, of the use of that, that scale and great fun music as well. So Boris then enters and sends Xenia and the nanny away, and it's just him and Fyodor, and Fyodor shows him a map of Russia. Uh, there's some great music while he's showing him, you know, what he's learning about the, the whole kingdom of Russia that he will come to rule one day. In this section, uh, Mussorgsky uses another incredible scale called the acoustic scale, which is kind of, it fuses octatonic and whole tone elements. Great use of, of different harmonies. And then Fyodor leaves, and there's a big soliloquy for Boris, one of his big kind of monologues over the course of this this opera, where he talks about how he's achieved the highest power, but there's no real 
joy in his soul. And he goes back and recaps his reign. There was famine, there were fires, and this led the people to dislike him. Uh, but there's something that he clearly is distraught about. So then this Prince Shusky arrives. This is, um, seems to be a, an important figure in, in Boris's court. Um, and his arrival is, is alerted to Boris by one of his boyars, and, and they tell him that, Bo that, that Shusky might be plotting something. But Shusky comes in and tells Boris about this pretender, and the pretender is this person who has been going around saying that he is the Tsarevich, the young, going to be Tsar, Dmitri. So in some way, the idea is that Dmitri didn't actually die, that was a hoax, and that he is the real Dmitri, and we know this to be Grigori. Boris starts freaking out. He sends away Fyodor. He says to close the borders. It's a very dramatic scene where he starts to, he, he seems like he's almost bordering on madness. It's a very, you know, this, this, this uh, opera and clearly the play are very Shakespearean. And although, um, although Pushkin modeled them on Shakespeare histories, they also have, I mean, this feels like very King Lear-esque where he's, He's with his children who are looking over his kingdom and then he's, he's kind of going mad. Um, but there's also, as we'll see, many elements of Macbeth, uh, direct elements of Macbeth in this, this opera as well. Um, so he freaks out, he's, he's kind of bordering on madness and he asks Shusky if he's ever heard of dead children rising from their graves. Um, this is what he thinks might have, might have happened in the case of this pretender. And then he gets really worked up. He asks Shusky to tell him again what really happened with this Dmitri. It seems like Shusky was there as well um, when this when this happened. And he says he'll execute him if he doesn't. It gets the music gets very intense. This is a dramatic moment in the score. So then Shusky describes the scene, and we get another instance of this very heavenly music from from Mazorsky. It's a beautiful passage mostly in, in the major mode and very high instruments. Um, and Shutsky is saying that maybe a miracle happened. Maybe that's, it's kind of this holy moment of, oh, maybe he got saved or something. And then Boris starts hallucinating and he actually sees the dead soul of Dimitri. Um, and here's where the kind of Macbeth element of this this plot comes in, uh, it, it seems to us that he's hallucinating and he's distraught because, it, at least in this telling of the story, he did order the, the murder of, of Dimitri. And so he's freaking out, he hallucinates and sees the dead soul of Dimitri. And I want to hear a little bit of the moment where he's, he's hallucinating because you can really hear in the music, it's very spooky, very kind of phantasmagoric, You're, he's, he's seeing this this apparition. Um, so here's here's that moment when he's he's kind of losing his mind and hallucinating.
So there's some of that incredible hallucination music uh, where Boris is, is seeing this phantasma and he eventually collapses and asks God to have mercy on him and that's how the act closes. So usually then there's an intermission after this, this second act. And then we start the third, what's called the Polish act. Now we're, uh, we're actually, I believe a year back, uh, in 1604. So it, it jumps around a lot. And this is the act that got added and it takes place in Poland. And it was only present in the, the 1872 revised version to give this big dramatic soprano role, um, because that's what, what many people were demanding of this, this opera. And let's hear the opening uh, of this act. It, it sets a totally new scene. Now we're in Poland, and to me, we open on this chorus of, of women singing this, this kind of water song. It's, it's, a, it's a folk song about water. And to me, it really evokes, for those devoted listeners who listen to our ring cycle breakdowns, this is very, very similar in my mind to the opening chorus of the Rhine Maidens in, in the ring. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, the ring that Das Rheingold would have been finished by this point. And I don't, I don't actually know whether Mazorgsky would have, have heard it necessarily, but in any case, uh, it's, it, it came, the premiere of Das Rheingold was 69. Uh, and you know, he certainly wouldn't have heard it, uh, before the original version of Boris Gudnov, but in this added version, we get this opening eerily similar to the opening of, of Wagner's Ring Cycle. So here's that opening water chorus from Act Three. who sings an aria about kind of being bored and, and what is her life. And uh, so then the, this Jesuit Rang Rangoni enters. And an important element of this whole plot is that uh, the Catholics, Jesuits, they are, are against the, the current Tsar, um, Boris, but, but against Fyodor too, because they were all Russian Orthodox. And so the, the Jesuit Rangoni asks Marina to convert uh, the, the Orthodox Russians to Catholicism when she becomes Sarita. So clearly, clearly she's got some sort of plan for becoming the head of the, the female head of state for, for Russia. In this passage, there's a lot of uh, E major, bright keys, high, uh, instrumentation, another beautiful passage. And it turns out that Rangoni then discloses that his plan is for Marina to tempt the pretender Dimitri, who's Grigori, 
and he tells her to do anything she can to tempt him. Um, and she gets upset with him. She, she throws him out for hypocrisy. You know, it's like, um, maybe all too familiar of a, of a narrative, but it's this kind of priest, uh, asking her to, to do things that seem so hypocritical to the teachings of, of the church. Um, it's a slightly odd scene, but she throws him out. So then the pretender appears and we suddenly get this very kind of romantic fluttering music. And let's just listen to a little bit of this, this moment when, when Grigori enters very different texture from a lot of the writing and the rest of this opera. It's all, it's kind of clear that a lot of this music was written after the other music because it has a distinctly different flair, but here's when the pretender enters the scene. So there's some, some great shimmering romantic music as Dimitri or Grigori enters. Um, so then Rangoni enters the scene as well, and he, he tells Grigori that Marina longs for him. And Grigori is clearly very smitten. He says he'll fall at her feet with love. And uh, Rangoni is, is seemingly plotting, trying to figure out how how this helps him. Um, and so then, uh, as this is going on, they, they have this kind of discussion. Rangoni is trying to get Marina to, to fall in love with Grigori and for his own personal gain. And this, this group of Poles folk people, Polish folk people come out. Um, and I want to hear this moment because suddenly we get a Polonaise, a, a traditional Polish dance brilliant moment of music where we hear this this rustic polonaise which is the quintessential polish folk dance uh, as these these peasants enter So yet another great rustic folk dance, this time of the Polish variety. So Marina is, there's this whole dance going on and Marina is dancing with, with other men and the Poles are singing of, of conquering Russians. Um, and Grigori gets upset by this and he says he's gonna abandon Marina and, and march on, on Moscow instead. Um, and then she, she comes out, she, uh, He's in love, uh, and and they sing a duet of kind of her spurning his advances. This is some of the most kind of romantic tenor writing in the opera, the, the closest that we might get to, like, Puccini or something like that, where he's really pleading her to, to 
be in love with him and she says she wants the Sarita position. She doesn't seem to be in love. Um, there's some great music where he, he kind of gets mad and he says he's going to march on Moscow and she's going to regret this decision and people will laugh at her for forsaking him. And suddenly she realizes that this is kind of her ticket. And so uh, she she starts singing romantic music of her own and she says she actually does love him. This seems to be some sort of manipulation, but in any case, um, let's hear the moment at the end of Act 3. Very kind of sumptuous, romantic, Puccini-esque moment. By far the most romantic and kind of traditional operatic music that we get in this whole opera at the end where they kind of seemingly maybe fall in love, but it's, it's unclear how real this is. passionate operatic music could be straight out of a Puccini opera. Notably, um, in the Pushkin text, Grigori asks Marina to love him, not to love Dimitri. And so it's clear that there's kind of, he's humanized in some way in the play, maybe less so in this moment, maybe less so in the opera. But but in any case, he, he has this kind of understanding that He's, he's clearly like somewhat actually in love with, with Marina. This is not just a power play for him. So let's listen to the, the beginning of Act 4 now, uh, the final act, very Russian. Uh, we're back in Russia in 1605, and this snaps us right back into place with this very Russian-sounding music. So here's the opening of Act 4. has shifted. It's a much bleaker uh, scene as we switch back to, to Russia. And we open on a crowd again, and they're discussing how the deacon, they've just been to a church service, and the deacon claimed an anathema on the pretender kind of excommunication. And they believe the pretender is Dimitri. They sing that Dimitri is alive and that Boris will soon have to meet him. So the crowd has shifted very significantly from the prologue of 1598 when they were clamoring for Boris. So then a holy fool enters, and this is a common figure in Russian Orthodoxy, a kind of fool who uh, says, 
nonsense, but but they they somehow make sense and they're they're very holy in some way. You know, it's the the fool appears all over the place. This is also in King Lear, of course, and um, this fool enters and and sings a kind of nonsense song, but the fool will play a role in this act. So the fool uh, gets kind of teased and roughed up by the crowd, and then Boris exits the church, and the people sing him this chorus, another one of these great Russian-sounding choruses from Mazorgsky where they ask him for food. Um, and Boris goes over, he, he you know, kind of looks away, he goes over to the fool and asks why he's crying, and uh, the 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 fool is crying because he's just been teased, roughed up by the crowd, and he tells them to have the crowd murdered just like he did the Tsarevich, Dmitri. And so he's, you know, this is another accusation of Boris that he's the one who did this. Um, Boris asks the fool to pray for him, uh, but the, the fool again kind of spurns this and says he can't play, he can't pray for a Tsar Herod, which is a ref reference to the biblical story of the the uh, massacre of the innocents, and so the idea is that you know, Boris is presiding over this uh, kind of crumbling of of the Russian state under his rule, and people are starving uh, because he's he's a bad czar, um, and then the the fool sings a lament for Russia flow my tears is is the lyrics and this is actually it's interesting because this is a famous dowland kind of lament from from many many centuries earlier one of the most famous pieces of early music but uh the holy fool now sings this kind of lament for and it has a kind of inflection of older ancient sad lamenting religious music and it's it's for russia the the country so then the Council of Boyars, we open, we, we go to a new scene and the Council of Boyars, which is like Boris's advisors, agree that the pretender should be killed. There's another great chorus at this moment. So they sing this great chorus, Shusky then, the character from earlier, enters and he tells them about Boris's hallucinations. And the Boyars don't believe him, but then Bo uh, Boris enters hallucinating again and we get more of these the spooky music and we get some musical flashbacks to where he's kind of these these nostalgic motifs that we've heard before this kind of heavenly music when people have sung about the Tsarevich who was killed we get flashbacks to that music so Boris then comes to his senses briefly but he's clearly losing his grip on reality it's a kind of King Lear or Macbeth-esque arc and Shusky tells him that P-Men, the monk from earlier, is here to see him. So P-Men enters and there's some more holy music as he, he comes on the stage. And he sings and he again tells the story of the Tsarevich. We get this heavenly music, more musical flashbacks as he, he tells this story to the Council of Boyars and to, to Boris. And as he tells this, Boris starts suffocating. There's very dramatic music and he asks... Uh, for people to call Fyodor his son. It seems like this story is is doing him in. It's the last straw. So then this famous scene, Boris says farewell to his son. He says that he's dying, and he gives his son some final counsel. He says, beware of the pretender. Um, 
And he says, you know, behold the tears of a sinful father. I don't pray for myself. Beautiful passage. And then he kind of, we get this holy music as he asks for blessings to shield his children. This is a phenomenal scene. It's worth watching for sure. But let's listen to this key moment where first he prays and then he hears his funeral bells. And while he hears these funeral bells, we hear kind of monks singing off stage. It's about a minute of music, but very important moment towards the end of this opera. So a lot musically happens there. First, he's he's praying. He sings this kind of single note as he's praying. Um, very dramatic scene. And then we hear the, these kind of funeral bells, which our keen listeners will notice are exactly the same bells that we heard for the coronation scene, the same music. So it kind of comes full circle. It was like this was, you know, from his coronation, he was he was doomed in some way. And then beautiful passage, monks singing off stage as he's, he's dying on stage. Just an incredible moment in the opera. So then he, he asks if his sin will ever be forgiven, and he dies saying, forgive me, forgive me. And there's an orchestral interlude at the end of the scene, very still music while the chorus is still singing off stage in the key of D-flat major, interestingly the key of the ring cycle ending as well so maybe there's more parallels there than than we we even think but uh then interestingly this is not the end of the opera it's a kind of perplexing end to the opera because then we have one final scene um and i want to hear the the exciting music uh that opens this this last scene uh, another scene of peasants where we open on some vagabonds who have captured a boyar. The people seem now to be in kind of open rebellion. Here's the opening of this final scene.
So the people have kind of worked themselves up into a revolutionary frenzy and they're they're ready to to overthrow the the government, the Tsar. And so they mock this boyar and then our two vagrants from earlier, from the, the inn scene and the, the first act enter. They're first singing off stage and then they come on singing about the crimes of, of Boris. While they do this, the people are getting worked up into a frenzy, beating police officers on stage often. And there's this rousing chorus calling for Dmitri to be the true czar and calling for the death to, to Boris. So the people are, are now behind uh, Grigory the Pretender. So the music changes and suddenly we get these two Jesuits who are chanting in Latin, praying for Dimitri. Um, and there's this odd moment where the vagrants uh, in the crowd, they tell, or the vagrants, these, these two uh, men who have entered from earlier, tell the crowd to hang the Jesuits. And they walk out, the crowd grabs them, they're about to hang them, there's some great music here. And they kind of pray to the Holy Virgin to be saved. And so I, in my kind of understanding of this, this is supposed to show the kind of changing of the guard from, from Russian Orthodoxy to Catholicism because Grigory has rallied the Catholic interests around him. Um, and so before these Jesuits can be hanged, Dmitri or Grigory enters and... There's a great uh, last clip that we'll play from this this scene is is when he enters just great processional music, and the chorus will sing kind of glory to the czar as he enters. But here's here's this kind of fanfare esque moment when he enters the scene. Notice how different this is from the the coronation scene of Boris. Dmitri Grigori enters, um, great fanfare moment there from, from the distance, and they sing this kind of glory to, to the Tsar as he enters, and Dmitri sings briefly for the people to, to follow him, and they seem to come on his side now. And they exit, and finally we close on the Holy Fool once more, singing his Flow Tears Lament for Russia. It's a very perplexing ending to the play, and in some ways a very perplexing opera plot. It's the set of vignettes. It's kind of a psychoanalysis of, of this character, but also an interesting subplot with the pretender. Um, they never actually meet each other. There's no confrontation. It's, it's, it's an odd one to kind of experience in real time, but but it's supplemented by some of the most incredible music. And I think that alone makes it a, a phenomenal opera, but also it's an interesting story, an interesting period in history, certainly. Um, and yeah, I think the, the impact of the music of 
Boris Godunov, which is primarily what this this podcast is about, can't be understated. I mean, you you've heard throughout the kind of characteristic Russian sound that that the this music has, but it's important to remember that uh, Mazorsky was a key player in forming that. I think this is one of the pieces that that led to you know if if we hear it now, it's one of the pieces that generated that Russian sound in many ways, along with Glinka, who came before, and the Five, who were composing around the time of Mazorsky. But this is one of the most important pieces to kind of form that that sound to bring Russian folk music harmonies into the canon of classical music. Um, phenomenal piece. I'd encourage all of our listeners to go watch it. Um, there's a great production uh, on Met Opera On Demand. You can get a seven-day trial and check it out there. Um, just just incredible music and, and an opera that I think maybe not so many people know, but, but I think one that, that everyone should know. Um, so great music. I hope you've enjoyed this this breakdown. Please, if you're enjoying the podcast, as always, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It, it helps us get out to as many people as possible and keep an eye out. We may do one more of these, these opera spark notes, I think. Uh, uh, one, more, one more breakdown. Maybe uh, I haven't decided yet whether we'll do a, a real fan favorite or, or another kind of more obscure one. Maybe we'll just have to do two. But we'll be back soon with with some more content, and thanks as always for joining us.